ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Angus Verley in the Country Hour chair today on the show. We'll talk transport with the federal government bringing Australia in line with some of Europe's standards on wider, safer trucks. And the iconic Mali event of the 1980s, which he proves king of the mountain, made a return at the weekend. You'll hear from the winners. And September is over, so please send in some rainfall totals for the month if you've got them handy. And of course, we'll talk to the Bureau later on about what's happening later in the week, including looks like not much rain in the west, but... Quite a lot of rain in the east, which I'm sure will be welcome in those fire zones. 0467 842 722, the text line. We'll get to rural news shortly, but before that, as you may have heard, the state Labor government has announced its new cabinet this morning, and there are quite a few changes. Gail Tierney is no longer Ag Minister. She's been replaced by Ros Spence a lower house member for the electorate of Calcallo in northwest Melbourne. She is the fifth Ag Minister since Labor came to power, following Jala Pulford, Jacqueline Symes, Marianne Thomas and, yes, most recently, Gail Tierney. Steve Demopoulos takes the environment portfolio from Lily D'Ambrosio and Danny Pearson has taken new Premier Jacinta Allen's transport infrastructure portfolio. Harriet Shing retains water but the regional development portfolio has gone to Gail Tierney. Be interested to get your thoughts on that, I suppose, particularly the fact that in the space of nine years there have been five agriculture ministers. Is that concerning for you, that lack of continuity? You can get in touch, 0467 842 722. In the meantime, though, let's head off to today's rural news with Emma Field. G'day, Angus. Making rural news. A New South Wales MP has slammed an energy company for starting a compulsory acquisition process to build transmission lines for renewable energy prior to receiving planning approval. Energy Co has notified landholders their properties could be compulsorily acquired as soon as November. Kate Fearman chaired a New South Wales state parliamentary inquiry on underground transmission lines for renewable energy project. She's condemned the move by Energy Co. They're threatening them with compulsory acquisition if they don't comply uh, within the next month or so. So the landholders don't have to go through compulsory acquisition, of course, if they let Energy Co onto their property to essentially uh, do what they have been wanting to do, which is build overhead transmission lines and acquire their property anyway in some ways. I know that a lot of landholders don't want to comply Uh, They're furious. They want to see uh, a consideration of options, obviously particularly underground. And still in New South Wales, the Animal Justice Party and the Nationals in that state have joined forces to set up yet another state parliamentary inquiry into feral horse management, this time in the Upper House, to examine aerial shooting. It comes as the Senate in Federal Parliament will deliver a report this week on the impacts and management of wild horses in the Australian Alps, and the New South Wales Environment Minister weighs up feral culling. Independent member for Wagga Wagga, Joe McCurr, says the latest inquiry is a distraction. I think that's going to be quite problematic. I mean, 
The Animal Justice Party has a pretty strong view uh, in terms of animal rights. Well, they don't want any culling of any animals. Well, that's my understanding, and I mean, that's, that's going to be a major issue, particularly for the Nationals on that committee. As I understand it, it's pretty critical to managing species across the state. At the end of the day, we've got a national park that is at threat. We've got large numbers of horses there, and we need to bring them under control. But the leader of the New South Wales Nationals, Dougal Saunders, has defended their support of the new inquiry, saying they haven't signed a, an alliance with the Animal Justice Party to stop all feral culling. I wouldn't say it's an alliance with the Animal Justice Party. What we've done is support the inquiry itself, which is one that uh, we do support. There's been, I think, a few little mistruths being told along the way around numbers or perceived numbers of Brumbies in Kosciuszko and who's providing that information and how it's being provided. So what we're supporting is actually looking at uh, the way that's been done and trying to get it done in a, in a far more open way. And still on feral animals, more than a 1,000 people gathered in Darwin for the 10th World Conference on Ecological Restoration. Around 80 nations were represented at this event, which also included northeast Arnhem Land traditional owner, Liam Yunbachi Monager. He says they're working on keeping feral animals out of floodplains around his homeland. We are trying to get rid of um, buffaloes, pigs. They do damage most than the, um, the native animals. As a community members um, and leaders, we are trying to work with the rangers and um, having that voice be heard um, so that um, the anti-government federal government can um, recognise why we need to um, remove those um, feral animals from our countries because they are destroying our landscape, our waterhole and even um, eating our traditional foods. Um, The only animal that we see is buffalo and pigs out in the floodplain when we go out to hunting. And finally, Toby Davidson is known on social media as the Wombat Guy. He drives hundreds of kilometres a week to help wombats suffering from mange. After a viral video of him propelled his GoFundMe, the 25-year-old has been able to quit his full-time marketing job and commit to treating sick wombats. So mange is an introduced parasite that is 100% fatal to wombats. I'm just filling up a burrow flap at the moment. So a burrow flap is like a little doggy door that you put on the front of a wombat burrow. When they enter and leave, it gives them medicine passively. So this is a really important tool to making sure that a wombat gets treatment every week for mange. What I do with a wombat burrow flap is I put them in front of a burrow that a mangy wombat is living in. And then once a week, I fill up that medicine so that the wombat can get its weekly Um, dose. And that wraps up Rural News. Thanks, Emma. Emma Field there with Rural News. A few people texting in. Robert Chilton's sent some rainfall figures. 17.5 for September, total for the year 497. I think that could be a familiar story that... Maybe above average for the year, perhaps, but below average for September. Helen at Shepparton on the uh, ministerial reshuffle of the state government. Helen says, pleased to see Shing, Harriet Shing, has retained water. It's a complex area at a very important time in the Murray-Darling Basin cycle. 
and she's been good so far. Thanks for that text, Helen. Scott at Hamilton, not so complimentary, says, Great, a new agriculture minister from northern Melbourne. Five ministers in nine years. Obviously, agriculture is not a high priority for Labor. Thanks, Scott. 0467 842 722 is how you can text in. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. The federal government has finally brought Australia in alignment with European truck standards, increasing the maximum permissible width of trucks from 2.5 metres to 2.55 metres. Australia had been one of only six countries still enforcing a 2.5 metre limit, restricting access to safer and greener trucks. David Smith, chair of the Australian Trucking Association, says while five centimetres might not sound like a big change, it's huge for the industry. Very significant. It, it, it's going to do a number of things, actually. It will introduce models, model of trucks into this country that have, have not been economical to bring in, firstly. Secondly, it's going to allow additional safety features that haven't been economical to engineer into a vehicle previously. So, therefore, we're going to have a, a greater choice of vehicles and we're going to have safer vehicles. But probably just as importantly, it's a step in the right direction or the first step into moving into reduced emission vehicles because they invariably are up to 2.55 wide as well. And I'm talking about battery electric prime movers, just for example. So it's going to do quite – it is very significant for the industry. Yes. So on the on the safety front, having that extra five centimetres permissible, that means the manufacturers can bolt on things like uh, sensors that might might sense vehicles in in truck blind spots, and and by bolting those sensors on with the extra five centimetres, you're not going to go over the Australian width limit. Absolutely, that's that's exactly where we're going to be, Angus. And just for example, uh, sensors that can detect vehicles alongside of you that you can't, cannot see in your mirrors, because um, that's a key point. There is blind spots in mirrors. These sensors that will be able to pick up vehicles alongside the truck and actually alert the driver that there's a vehicle there while travelling on. Those additional safety features that have been difficult to employ in, in under vehicles in Australia or, or uh, to engineer in will now be able to do so. So it's a huge safety benefit here. And David, to this point with an Australian limit of 2.5 metres and a European limit of 2.55 metres, uh, has that meant lots of European trucks come to Australia? Has that meant that we haven't been able to access certain trucks or that manufacturers have said, well, I'm not going to redesign my truck entirely uh, just for, for the Australian market? That is correct, um, but it prob- Angus, it probably applies to some models rather than the complete manufacturer, if that makes sense. So, you know, if, if we if we use a given European manufacturer, he'll have certain models uh, at 2.5, uh, but there'll be other models at 2.55 that they just don't bring to Australia that um, because it's illegal to run on the road, that will now be available with that full suite of safety features, and, and it's going to give the Australian industry much larger range to be able to purchase from. 
the US, it's different. Again, its width limit is 2.6 metres. Should, was this an opportunity for the, the federal government here to jump from 2.5 to, to 2.6 so that uh, any any vehicles from both Europe and the US would be permissible in Australia? That's absolutely the ideal world. Uh, initially, we did push for 2.6, which would then cover off American and European vehicles. The government's now decided to uh, peg it at 2.55. Um, again, the ideal world would be to go to straight to 2.6, but of course, in Australia, we've got to consider uh, all the state jurisdictions as well as the federal government. So there was certainly a bit of pushback from various governments at 2.6, and we've arrived at 2.55. It's interesting because at 2.5, with Australia now going to 2.55, there's actually only five countries left in the entire world that remain at 2.5 wide. Right. So Australia had been left behind, it sounds like. We, we did. We did lag badly. Um, uh, if you like, we were the sixth last country in the world to, uh, to go to 2.55. I guess, in a sense, it was a bit frustrating for industry because... You know, we're pretty serious about looking at our emissions and and battery electric, et cetera, that are produced at 2.55 and not able to bring them into this country. So emissions, safety, you know, all those things making it pretty frustrating from an industry point of view, yes. Now, this width change, that only applies to the truck or the prime mover, not, not to trailers. Do you also need to have an increased width for trailers? Yes, the, that's the easy answer, yes. Longer term, it's something that we need to probably focus on. And to just give you an example of a refrigerated trailer, if we were to go to 2.6, we would actually be able to double the amount of insulation in the walls of a refrigerated trailer, thereby, again, saving more fuel and keeping product at a much more constant temperature, just by way of example. So... My belief is one of the next steps is we, we need to focus on trailers and secondly, we probably need to focus on 2.6. And David, I suppose there's a bit of an attitude in the broader community out there that, which is a bit anti-truck or anti-big truck, but bigger trucks, we're talking about width in this case, but, but also we're seeing longer trucks, obviously. They're more efficient, aren't they? Oh, Absolutely. You know, with efficiency, less fuel, less emissions, and really that's where industry wants to be. We we don't want to be big emitters, you know, so we really do need to get on this road of reducing our emissions, having safer trucks, and some of the things you mentioned in terms of productivity, um, you know, we, we go longer. The minute we go road train, we take one whole truck off the road, if that makes sense. So uh, productivity is pretty key, obviously, on our agenda. You know, if we can reduce the number of trucks on the road, reduce our emissions, all in the mix of things, that's that's the space we want to be in. Yes. That was David Smith, chair of the Australian Trucking Association. On the text line, Graham at Addington near Ballarat has been in touch with his September total, 26 mils, compared to 104 in September last year. Says it all really, doesn't it, Graham? And also uh, year to date, January to September, 492, again against 713 last year. A drink tomorrow would be handy, Graham says. We'll ask the Bureau shortly whether he should expect a drink, but uh, you can text in 0467 842 722.
the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. A biotech company using genomic testing has found beekeepers can test hives for varroa mite with cotton swabs or even samples of honey. Using similar technology used during the pandemic to detect COVID in wastewater, this testing could be an alternative to alcohol washing and sugar shakes. Dr Evgeny Glasov, Regional Manager for Applied Genomics at Illumina, explained to Annie Brown how they're using eDNA for testing. So eDNA refers to environmental DNA. That's what E stands for. Every living organism has DNA and they shed this DNA into environment. Uh, and what we can do, we can detect those fragments shed into environment to detect those organisms. Uh, in a similar way, we've done it um, in um, during COVID-19 pandemic when we detect um, SARS-CoV-2 virus in wastewater, for example. Yeah, right. Okay. So it's the same technology that was used for that testing in, in it's water. A, it's a very similar technology. It's basically detecting fragments of DNA in different types of environment. And it can be wastewater, can be aquatic environment, can be air, can be any, any other type of samples like mm-hmm. soil. So how can this kind of DNA testing be used for varroa mite and helping beekeepers out? So this is a very promising approach to uh, make testing more scalable and more sensitive for beekeepers because right now uh, typically people use what is known as alcohol wash test when they take a cup full of bees and then soak them in ethanol that causes mites to fall off and then people look for those mites uh, in liquid to tell whether or not they have infestation. Um, Obviously this is very invasive and very laborious technique where uh, first of all bees that are being tested are um, killed by ethanol uh, and second also mites that fall off from bees are very small uh, and uh, they only easy to detect when you have relatively large infestation in your colony. Uh, when you have mild infestation often uh, those situation goes undetected and that increases the risk of wider spread. Uh, what eDNA um, or other molecular techniques can do, and genomics in general, is to provide an early warning system where you can detect uh, mites at this early infestation stage when it's easier to contain and easier to treat. And it's uh, also a lot less um, invasive. In case of eDNA, you can also test honey that also contains DNA. Um, that can be done routinely as part of the beekeeper's process of collecting honey. So it's just like a, a swab through a beehive instead of... Yeah, it can be a swab. Of bee, you're absolutely right. It can be a swab similar to what's, again, what we've done uh, with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, a similar type of swab of beehive itself, or, as I said, just um, sample honey as part of the honey collection and then extract or isolate uh, DNA fragments from honey. How accurate is this testing? This testing can be very, um, as I said, it can be more sensitive because it can detect uh, infestation at earlier stages. But in terms of accuracy, it can be uh, tailored to be very specific to my DNA and uh, detection of fragments of my DNA. Or another approach that we call metagenomics, you can look at entire pool of DNA in, a, in that sample to look at everything that is there. And that's where genomics uh, adds another advantage compared to traditional methodologies because it goes beyond just detection of the mite itself. Uh, It can also um, 
give you information about what viruses or what other pathogens might can carry, because uh, part of the problem with uh, mite infestation is not just the fact that mites uh, parasite on bees themselves, but also that they, they carry different type of viruses. So are beekeepers using this technology right now to test? It's at relatively early stages. It's been I know it's been tested by different research organizations around the country, like Department of uh, Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, CSIRO, also, for example, National eDNA Reference Center um, in Canberra, where now uh, they've been evaluating that approach, and that's how they also can tell us um, about sensitivity of this methodology. But it's in relatively early stages of being accessible more broadly. That was Dr. Evgeny Glasov from Illumina speaking with Annie Brown. 26 past 12, you're listening to The Country Hour. And more hay producers are adopting an alternative method of making hay that in some cases is halving the time it takes to cure and be ready to be baled. It involves spreading freshly cut hay across the ground to dry out rather than leaving it in narrow windrows. Minyip farmer Ryan Milgate is giving it a go this year and I had a chat with him about how he's getting on. Oh, we've taken a little bit of a different approach to what we've traditionally done, Angus. Um, I've sort of been watching a few others um, closely over the past couple of years. Um, so what we're doing is probably a bit more what people would see with silage or um, maybe in European climates. We've um, So we've cut our vetch and then we've actually taken to it with a tetter rake and we made beautiful rows and we've spread them all back out across the paddock again. Um, and the idea being that we're trying to speed up the drying process and get the hay in a bale a bit quicker than normal. Okay, so typically you'd, you'd windrow your hay, leave it in that nice, neat little windrow uh, for it to cure, but this time you, you've spread that windrow all over the ground. Yeah, it seems a bit counterintuitive. I know um, driving along with a tether on and you're just spreading these rows out, but um, I guess we found in the past um, vetch can take quite a long time to cure and uh, we're just trying to close that window down for oh, heaps of reasons really. There's, you know, the risk of spoilage and and the other main thing for us is just, um, you know, we have a window, we run a lot of livestock as well, so we've had a window for a fortnight where we'd like to get our hay in a bale, so we've sort of thought let's have a crack at see if we can get it carting in a bale within a fortnight. And spreading it out for, uh, and leaving it there to cure rather than leaving it in a windrow, do you get issues with bleaching or c- colour loss of the hay? Look, I'm only a novice at this, so I can only comment on what I've seen. But personally, what we've seen, we haven't seen a lot of... You, yes, you do get some bleaching, but with what's left of the, the, the hay, um, because it's cured so quickly, we've got, you know, really good colour in the rest of it, so... The bales we have done so far, the colour looks, you know, exceptional to what, you know, it's far and above better quality than anything I've ever made. And Ryan, we should say too, you're also using a a hay preservative product. Can you just explain what that does and how it helps the process? Yeah, so I think that that's actually really the key to the whole process is the the hay preservative. Now, um, like I said, I'm a novice, but it's my understanding is... um, this product actually uh, reacts with the oxygen um, and and stops um, the yeasts and moulds and that forming in the hay, and they're, they're the actual um, 
you know, those microbes are actually what create the heat um, and, and cause hay to catch on fire. So um, it's sort of, you know, the, the fire triangle, it's, it's, it's essentially the same as that. You remove one part of that triangle being the oxygen and those yeast and moulds and, and microbes can't, uh, can't um, live in the bales and removes the heat issue. Okay, so you can bale the hay when it's at a higher moisture and, and not be concerned about spontaneous combustion. What we're actually aiming to bale, we're still baling at a similar moisture level, but I think that the key thing to understand is we're baling on sap moisture. So we're still aiming to be around that 16% moisture that we're baling at, which is about where we'd be at if you're traditionally baling. But the moisture is actually sap that's still still within that plant, whereas traditionally you would let that plant dry right down and then we'd be waiting for a dew moisture, you know, moisture out of the atmosphere to actually bring that, that moisture back up to, um, to bale it. And if you were relying on that, that uh, dew moisture, you've, you've got a, a bale when the dew's there, don't you, in the middle of the night. But with, with this method, you can just uh, do it in the middle of the day? That's, yeah, that, that's, um, that's, the, uh, that's the intention and that's how um, those that have been using this method have been able to do it is, yeah, they, they can actually bale in the middle of the day because we're actually using the moisture that's already in the plant. Um, yeah, it can get quite fickle trying to get a, a dew and you might get two hours a day, you might get 10 and <laughs> it varies a lot. It's, um, I think it's a cross between an art and a dark science or something. It's, a, it's quite a tricky you know if you think you've got hay nailed and you've done it right next year it'll be completely different again and you're back to square one <laughs> Ryan uh, so you're sort of at the at the point now of being ready to bale so uh, how many days since you cut and and that window how would that compare to uh, traditional haymaking I think we comfortably will get it within a fortnight um, traditionally we would cut it put it in you know sort of tighter rows to limit bleaching and we wouldn't even look at the paddock for two and a half weeks three weeks probably and you know it's been quite common that we've been out you know out to a month before we've bailed so you know the the window is probably comfortably of what it would normally be that was minute farmer ryan millgate 29 to 1, so we better head to news headlines now today with Georgia Lenton-Williams. Good afternoon, Angus. Making news. Hundreds of firefighters are preparing for strong winds tomorrow as multiple bushfires burn across Gippsland in Victoria's east. Fire crews are focusing on two blazes in Briagalong and Rawson. One house has been lost and 5,000 hectares have been burnt. The Country Fire Authority is urging residents to have more than one source of information when monitoring emergencies. The CFA says yesterday newer iPhones and those with updated iOS systems had issues receiving push notifications within the Vic Emergency app. A total fire ban has been declared today in the northwest of the state in the Mallee District, which covers areas from Wedderburn to Mildura. Ballarat Clarendon College says it is reviewing its expectations for teachers to record all senior classes after a video of a teacher's expletive-filled rant to a Year 12 class was shared on social media last month. 
The video was shared from a class recording available to students online, and the teacher later resigned. The Independent Education Union has raised concerns about the school's expectation to record classes, saying it is not a common practice and raises legal and privacy concerns. Ballarat Clarendon's deputy principal said in a statement the school is reviewing the practice of recording senior lessons. Police are appealing for information after a Daniloquin man was set on fire on Saturday. The 22-year-old man sustained significant facial burns after he was reportedly set alight at a campsite at the Daniloquin Ute Muster. He was airlifted to Victoria's Alfred Hospital where he remains in a serious condition. Murray River Police have released images of a Caucasian man with a brown mullet hairstyle who may assist with their investigation and urge anyone with information to contact Crime Stoppers. Traditional owner organisations in Ballarat are publicly announcing their support for the yes vote in the upcoming referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament for the first time today. Wadarung Traditional Owners Corporation and Ballarat and District Aboriginal Cooperative have surveyed their communities and found a majority support the yes vote. The organisations are making a public statement. Early voting for the referendum begins today, before polling day on October 14. And that's the news. Thanks, Georgia. Georgia Lenton-Williams there with news headlines. Let's get to the Weather Bureau now because lots to talk about today and I'm joined on the line by senior forecaster Lincoln Trainer. Afternoon, Lincoln. Good afternoon, Angus. How are you? Good. Not too bad, Lincoln. And uh, probably I think if you could start talking about what the weather's like at the moment in those fire zones in uh, Gippsland. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, obviously, it's been a bit of a warm uh, and dry patch over the last few weeks, and I think that's really brought up that fire danger um, recently. So, you know, at the moment we've got very dry, stable conditions and northwesterly, and that's bringing temperatures in the, the mid-20s in that fire zone. Um, I suppose the news around that is the winds will increase a little bit and we're monitoring that closely from the northwest ahead of this next front. Uh, and a front, a really significant front is crossing um, uh, tomorrow and that's going to bring much cooler conditions and um, and some rainfall from, from uh, early morning from the western part of the state. So you'd imagine by the afternoon we'll see some rainfall beginning to fall over those areas, which I imagine will be welcome relief. Uh, and then we're going to see a little bit of a rainfall event across eastern Victoria over the next 48 hours from Wednesday, Thursday, and then easing Friday. So at the moment we've got warm weather, but um, that's expected to um, slowly um, change over the next 24 hours as this front comes through. And Lincoln, I'm looking at the forecast for for parts of Gippsland where you forecast Mafra Sale, Bansdale, etc. And yes. some of the totals you're forecasting are enormous. Yes, this is, this is I mean, it's, it's tough because the guidance is still a few days out and at the moment we've got this front approaching and it's in the bite and it's amazing to think that we've got these computer models that are telling us when it's going to be coming across the state and also that it's going to turn into a low-pressure system over eastern Victoria uh, on Wednesday. So what's causing those higher rainfall totals, which we haven't seen a little bit in September, is that we're getting a low-pressure system forming over eastern Victoria and that's quite unstable. Um, it's mixing in a lot of the warm air from, from the north and cool air from the south is quite unstable. That creates the right conditions for rainfall and we're going to see um, 
some reasonable falls compared to what we've seen in the last month. So hopefully that will be some welcome relief to, to some, also for the fires uh, in that area. And what, cumulative totals, potentially 100 mils plus in some areas? Well, it's, it's an interesting, it's a, it's a, you know, we've been busy today. It's been a, such a busy morning here at the Bureau talking to all different types of emergency services coming in the next few days around rainfall, landslides, lots of different things. Um, and, you know, I, it's, I could step you through it. I mean, obviously Tuesday... Um, is when the rain begins. We've got the, the front crossing the state uh, early Tuesday. We're, we're going to see some gusty northwesterlies ahead causing some severe damaging winds, actually, that uh, also we've got to draw attention to. We can sometimes take our eye off those things, but we're su- suspecting early tomorrow morning into the um, to lunch there'll be some 100-kilometre-hour uh, winds uh, on elevated areas. So that's that's important to note. Um, then the temps are still in the low 20s, particularly in the western half of the state. Sorry, the eastern half. They get a little bit cooler in the western half because um, the, the front's timing. Uh, but essentially, tomorrow, um, we're expecting, just looking at the totals here, um, just going back, expecting to see uh, totals around... Um, we're thinking in in the western half of the state, you know, 10 to 20 mils, um, grading uh, up to 40 mils in the eastern half. Um, and then on the ranges, we could see up to 60 and peak totals of 100 on, on the ranges. So, um, but that's obviously slowly moving across the state. Uh, and that will be at the end of Tuesday. We could see those cumulative totals. But on Wednesday, you know, you've got that low forming and that continues the rainfall in in the eastern half of the state, and we can see um, persistent rainfall over the eastern half during Wednesday. Again, um, you, you could see falls, particularly on and near the ranges of you know uh, 60 to 80 millimetres. Um, but grading away from the ranges, you'd be saying about you know 20 to 40 millimetres. So for people kind of living in East Gippsland, you could be seeing 20 to 40 uh, millimetres on. Um, on Wednesday, and then it persists a little bit on Thursday because that that low continues to to um, move track east on Thursday, and you start to see. So, if you're thinking about a rainfall event, it's it begins Tuesday. The the front hits the western half of the state, um, probably gets into more the eastern half of the state by Tuesday afternoon. We'll start to see some some falls then by Tuesday night, and then Wednesday we should see some moderate falls um, across the state, particularly in the eastern half of the state, and then Thursday it persists in the eastern half of the state with the lower the low pressure system falling and then uh, forming and then uh, Friday it starts to ease as it moves into the Tasman and we start to just be in a southwesterly but you know so cooler temperatures in the mid tween in the mid teens from Wednesday and then um, and rain and also with this low pressure system we could get some severe damaging winds on Thursday uh, in the eastern part of the state as well so there's a lot to look at plus we've got a potential thunderstorms as well um, in the north um, at the moment today and potentially tomorrow. Um, so we're really monitoring all the severe weather at the moment and keeping a close eye. I would, I would recommend that people, if they're, they're interested, to really keep a close eye to the Bureau website for our warnings so that they're um, up to date and also our forecasts because they're constantly being updated every 12 hours. And I'd imagine, Lincoln, talking about warnings, there could be the prospect of uh, flash flood warnings. 
There is. That's the other thing at the moment. We now are on flood watch for the eastern part of the state uh, for Wednesday. So um, the flood team are up and about behind me at the moment. They're, they're looking at all the models and doing all the good work to make sure that they deliver the best information to the public. So, um, yeah, at the moment, a flood watch for um, eastern parts of the state. Um, and it's all going to come down to where this low-pressure system settles, um, and then we'll be able to get further clarity on that uh, in the next 24 hours. In the west of the state, Lincoln, I spoke with your colleagues last week about what was looking like possibly a, a positive forecast, uh, maybe an inch of rain on the old scale, but I'm, I'm based in Horsham. It looks like that. The western part, uh, part of the state, the rainfall, the forecast has dropped off now. Yeah, it, 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 initially the uh, guidance had this feature forming over the central part of the state, which was going to give the northwest a little bit more rainfall. Now it looks like there'll be some rainfall, you know, during Tuesday as the, as the front crosses, but then the low kind of forms over the eastern part of the state. So you'll see a little bit, you know, one to five mil at best, but unfortunately, um, unless that low decides to reposition itself again, I think um, it's unlikely there'll be much more in the northwest. Okay, thanks, Lincoln. We'll be sure to stay in touch. No problems. Thanks, Angus. Lincoln Trainer there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau. ABC Radio, Emergency Information. There are two watch and act messages current for the fire burning out of control north of Briagalong. There is a watch and act for Briagalong, Cobbinar, Culloden, Mornapa and Surrounds. There is an additional watch and act for the Glen Allerdale community. If you're in these areas, it is strongly recommended you prepare to evacuate and monitor emergency warnings. There is a bushfire at Duffy Road, Briagalong, that is not yet under control. Bensdale Dargo Road is now open. Police will remain in the area to monitor that situation. If you are in this area, drive carefully. Smoke may be over the road. Numerous fires are still active in this region. Firefighters are continuing to work on the fire, assisted by aircraft. If you are located in the Briagalong, Cobbinar, Culloden, Mornapper, Glenalladale or surrounding areas, act now to protect your life. Prepare to evacuate immediately and leave as soon as you are ready. For more information, stay tuned to ABC Local Radio for updates or visit the Vic Emergency website at emergency.vic.com. .gov.au. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. An iconic Mallee event not held since the 1980s made a return at the weekend with the running of Witchy Proof's King of the Mountain. If you haven't heard of it, it's as simple as it is brutal. Competitors shoulder a bag of wheat weighing 60 kilos for the men and 20 kilos for the women and race one kilometre from the centre of town to the peak of Mount Proof. The ABC's Angus McIntosh headed along. Hey, holding up, mate. Oh, brutal, mate, brutal. But awesome experience, so yeah, good fun. What's your name and where are you from? Tom Rogers from Stoll. Yeah, so I saw it um, advertised the other day. I was like, oh, it looks like fun. Not so much fun there. <laughs> that was good. So, yeah. 
What sort of preparation did you do for the event? Um, a little bit of running, running four days a week, gym four days a week, a bit of a mix. Yeah. yeah, a lot of hills. So, but no use for a 60 kilo bag on my back, so that was good. So, how do you feel now? Relieved. <laughs> Relieved it's done. <laughs> no, happy, happy. Yeah. What's your name? Uh, HN. Yeah? Yep. And how do you back your chances today? Oh, I don't know. Uh, we'll see what happens. What brings you to Witcherproof? I live in Birdship, so not far. Yeah? Yeah, what do you do? I'm a farmer. Yeah. Have you heard much of the history of the race? Or? Yeah, I looked into it. Yeah. yeah. Have you had a chance to practice anything before you got into I've it? I've done it a couple of times, yeah. So, yeah. But not in the heat. I went here at 4 o'clock in the morning. So. Yeah. And how's your times looking? It was nine minute practice run. So if I can do it in A today, that'd be good. You think you we're going to risk any injuries or anything along those lines? Nah, as long as I finish, that'd be right. Yep. David Willersdorf. Where's you from? Slowed uh, you down to Geneva. So tell me, have you done any preparation for the race today? Uh, probably three, maybe four weeks. Sort of just uh, yeah, running out around Slowed you down there. Um, yeah, not a lot, just in between work at night. Um, yeah, so. Anyway, feeling like not enough at the moment, and anyway, let's see how it goes. You're a pretty big fella, you've got a bit of experience lifting heavy things though? Uh, yeah, I work on a farm, so we're always throwing, throwing you know, sheep and whatever around a bit, I suppose. So, yeah, a little bit of experience, but uh, yeah, this will be still a big challenge. We don't usually carry anything for a kilometre, so. <laughs> how do you back your chances today? I'll finish, but uh, yeah, won't be, in the, won't be in the top bloody three, I don't think, so. <laughs> I'll try and catch up with you at the end. That no, sounds good. Can you tell me a bit about how you feel now? Uh, fairly worn out. Got the breast back a bit now though, so yeah, she's certainly certainly a challenge for those boys that jog most of the way. I jog probably 200 metres, and just had to pace walk the rest of it. Bloody hard, hard. But, uh, good challenge, but yeah, bloody hell. <laughs> Do you see yourself coming back next year? Uh, yeah, probably. Uh, it's just a, a good thing to challenge that. Might do a bit more pre-season maybe for it, but uh, yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, certainly a good challenge anyway. But if you, if you want to challenge yourself out of go, buddy, get out here and have a crack. Is <laughs> 60 kilos as heavy as it sounds? Well, every bit of it. Every bit of it. By the end of it, I think it feels like about 80. Just the constant, constant lay of it on you, that sort of stuff, uh, yeah, just slowly plays that. Yeah, then you get to the bottom of that hill and uh, you just got to put it in your gut, you got to get up it. Because, uh, yeah, you're about step by then, so. <laughs> uh, Ricky Allen, and president of the Witchcraft Narrowport Footy Club. Alright, tell me a bit about what brought about bringing this event back after 35 years. Uh, just, yeah, come up with an idea, a bit of a fundraiser for the football club, but a great byproduct of that was also very good for the town and the community to get this event back up and running, so that was the main sort of main driver. What about the number of competitors? Yeah, so we ended up with uh, 28 in the males and 25 in the females in the um, King and Queen, uh, which was great. It sort of become a bit of a rush in the last week, but uh, I think that's only going to build. Look, speaking to a few of them anyway, um, yeah, the event went off well. And even early on the dash, we had a couple of really good runners in that. I think the men's dash got up there in 255, something like that. So that's pretty good going. Um, and the junior dash, very popular with the boys. I think it was 40 odd runners, 45 runners. So that's great. So what's your, is there an ambition to continue the event going forward? Yeah, definitely. Don't get me wrong. We'll do a bit of a, um, a PMI after this and see what uh, the issues or 
whatever, but also the positives as well. So I think the positive are going to far out. Why we just thought the hardest part was getting it going again, so we'll start it there, but uh, no, this will be ongoing. So we'll build from there. And um, I think as it, the event got, you know, early on, there was a lot of knockers and there was a couple of, um, yeah, a couple of blokes who've done a lot of work who were very positive about the idea. Um, and those two men, you know, have got, they've really driven this. So, um, and the last month or so, there was a lot less knockers once we got a bit close to the event. So I think that'll only build for next year. That was Ricky Allen, president of the Witchy Proof Narraport Football Netball Club, ending that report from Angus McIntosh on the King of the Mountains' triumphant return after a 35-year hiatus. And for me, the story of the day at the event, which I did head along to, really was the performance of Carly Isaac. Now, you can call me biased here if you like, because she just happens to be my cousin. She was crowned Queen of the Mountain in a record time, and she also won two earlier events on the day, all in a totally dominant fashion, it is uh, fair to say. This morning she put down her plumbing tools briefly to have a quick chat with me about her wins. Yeah, it was uh, pretty rewarding. Um, yeah, the support all the way up the mount and across the track was unreal, so that was probably a great thing to have along the way. And, yeah, no, it was great competition all day Honestly, felt like someone was on my tail the whole time. So, yeah, it wasn't like it was going to be an easy race at all. And, it, yeah, it was definitely a tough one. Carly, most people spent the morning resting up for the main event. But you you didn't just do the, the main event. You also did the Mountain Dash, which was the run without the sack of wheat. And you, you were part of the, the relay team as well. So you did all three and, and you won all three. Yeah, yeah, well, I actually was just going to do the relay and the um, Queen of the Mountain race. And then when I got there that morning, they said they only had a couple entries. So I said, oh, I'll have a go at that one as well and just signed up with about 10 minutes to go before the race and just planned on just doing that as a bit of a cruisy race and warm up for the day a bit. Yeah, and then, yeah, I'm not much of a cruisy runner, so I just had a crack at it and, yeah. Yeah, followed by the relay, which I probably got the easiest leg out of everyone for sure. I was pretty much running downhill for the first leg and then passed on to my sister and she had a great run. And then two of our mates from netball, Georgia Hoare, took it next. And by the comments I've heard, I didn't watch her run, but her feet were on fire and I think she carried the team. And then, yeah, Emma Darker finished us off and just smashed that mountain like it was nothing, I'm pretty sure. I can tell you she did. Carly, I was there yeah. toward the end. I saw Emma sail up the hill like she, like she had no weight at yeah. all in front of her. Yeah, I've, I've seen a video and it doesn't even look like she's running up a hill. She's just gliding over it, which is unreal. So, yeah, I didn't do much in the relay team at all. That was all, all them for sure. I, I had the easy leg. At, yeah. And you're extremely modest, Carly, and I know you said you felt like you had people on your tail in, in all three races, but... I, I saw them, and with all due respect to the other competitors, you uh, you won them all in dominant fashion, and and the, <laughs> the place getters were quite quite a way behind you, really, weren't they? Yeah, they were in the end. Um, it was hard with the sack. The other ones, I did know I had a little bit of a lead, but the sack, you can't really turn around and have a look or anything like that. So I honestly thought the way the crowd was getting around it, I thought there was someone literally probably two steps behind me um, the whole way until I got to the finish line. So that was really good. Like it was great to be pushed so hard, just even just mentally thinking that someone's right on your tail. So, yeah. And it must have been tough, but 
it didn't look tough for you because you seemed to cruise up the hill. You had a big smile on your face, and when you crossed <laughs> the finish line, you just sort of dropped the sack. I think you might have maybe hit the hit the stop button on your smartwatch and uh, cruise over <laughs> to the water station. You look pretty fresh. Yeah, no. Yeah, I don't know. It definitely didn't feel that way. I know mum was halfway along the track and she said to her mate she was sitting with that um, I think she's done when she seen me go past her. I think I was the, the climb was definitely harder than the mountain. I think everyone along the mountain side definitely gets you over the line. Yeah, the support was unreal. Like I think we had there was so many people from Bort, the netball club and stuff like that and you obviously Angus. Um, and your family that come over and watch this, which was, yeah, it was great to have all the supporters getting you across the line. And Carly, in terms of preparation for, for anyone who knows you, they know you're always running, but did, did you do any specific training for this event? Uh, yeah, so it was a little bit hard with netball finals on at the same time, so it was a little bit restricted. But, yeah, about two months ago I said to Dad, oh, I think I'm going to have a race. In it, and so Dad got me a wheat bag all sorted with uh, 25 kilos in it, so I could be five kilos lighter on race day. And um, yeah, that was about two months ago, and I did probably one or two runs with it every week, just doing about four or five k's, running up hills and stuff in Bort. And then yeah, when we got the relay team together, we signed up grand final night after we um, lost the grand final. We got everyone together and we signed up for the race and. Uh, did a practice run in Witchy on the Sunday beforehand. And, yeah, we did a few practice runs, which was good. And, Carly, there was a nice, nice. well, I was going to say little, but a nice big reward in the end, a pretty handy uh, uh, prize money check. Yeah. Yeah, there was actually. Um, yeah, the five grand for the Queen race was definitely something, I don't know, don't really, when I was entering it, I didn't really think I was going to get it, but... Yeah, it's nice to also have that as well as the the queen cram thing they gave me. And dare I ask how you celebrated that afternoon slash evening? Um, yeah, well, I was, yeah, we stayed around at Witchy. Witchy had put on a fantastic event in the park there and ran by the footy club and uh, they had a fantastic crowd there and we watched the footy there till half time, did the awards and then, um, the Bort Golf Course was putting on a bit of a show and um, getting around all the people that tackled the mountain for the day. So we went back there and celebrated. But, it, yeah, it wasn't too late for me. I was pretty knackered by the end. That was Queen of the Mountain Carly Isaac, who, as I said, happens to be my cousin. Some rainfall figures on the text line before we go to markets. Robert Mulker says 18 mils for September, 408 year to date. Bring on the rain. Deal at Tynong says 54 mils for September, but we would welcome a rain tomorrow. And then Steve at Bambara says, Angus, I wish the Bureau would stop predicting rain a few days out and then only showers. He says they're pipe dreaming with their rain predictions. Thanks for that text, Steve. And this person makes a good point. Can you ask the weather guy what are the ranges that he was referring to? It's a good point. It's a general term. We'll um we'll try and be more specific on that one. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two is the text line if you're quick. Off to markets now, starting today at Pakenham Cattle with Brendan Fletcher. 
numbers decreased to 530, that's 450 fewer, with the usual buyers present but not all operating fully in a dearer market. Quality improved with a few more prime cattle and fewer secondary lots. Well finished trade cattle sold to stronger competition. Ground steers and bullocks lifted a few cents. Manufacturing steers gained 10 to 20. Cows sold 10 to 20 cents dearer on most sales, with processors loading cows for an estimated 220 to 332 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls lifted 10 cents. Veal has sold from 130 to 280, yearling trade steers 230 to 270 after a top of 338. The heifer portion 240 to 284. Ground steers and bullocks 250 to 270. Heavy manufacturing steers 170 to 263. A handful of light and medium weight cows 62 to 140. Heavy weights 95 to 175. Heavy bulls 223 to 244. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks, Brendan, to Mortlake Cattle now with Chris Agnew. Mortlake agents yarded 6.25 head this week, a decrease of 180 head. The offering of grown cattle doubled this week. However, the largest percentage by far were manufacturing steers. Cow numbers came back again with more beef cows on offer this week. Trade cattle on offer improved generally in quality. Grown steers remained firm. Heavy heifers lost 20 cents a kilo and the trade cattle gained 10 to 15 cents in places, mainly due to quality. Manufacturing steers firm, however the real heavy end slipped 15 cents. Beef cows lost 15 cents a kilo and the dairy cows slipped 10 cents a kilo. Trade steers and heifers made between 190 and 275. Grown cattle topped at 264 manufacturing steers from 130 to 198 and the good beef cows from 150 to 168 dairy cows were generally between 135 and 165 at mortlake this is chris agnew reporting for mla thanks chris no wagga cattle sale today because it is a public holiday in new south wales so let's head to bendigo with jenny kelly Good afternoon. The sheep market had a big turnaround today. Prices nearly doubling off a low base as they gained up to $25 per head to become the talking point of the sale. Big ewes $42 to a top of $70. Most sheep $30 to $50 at $120 to $200 cents a kilo carcass weight. The dearer trend was maybe linked to the public holiday in New South Wales with one northern exporter dominant on heavy mutton. In the lambs, there was stronger demand for suckers with weight. The heavier suckers, over 26 kilos carcass weight, 3 to $8 dearer. Any old season lambs were also dearer. However, once on to the general run of suckers in the 20 to 24 kilo range, prices were just similar to $5 easier. A few pens of heavy suckers, over 30 kilos carcass weight, 152 to $160. Most of the lead young lambs were in the 26 to 30 kilo range and made from 124 to $154 to average 140. Heavy suckers trending around 500 cents. The category with the most supply was the 22 to 24 kilo suckers and these made from 101 to $122 to average $110 at around 470 cents. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Thanks, Jenny. Good to hear some good news there with the mutton job. Prices doubling. Quickly, Ivan in Gifford says 19 mils for September, similar to last year, but year-to-date is only 218 mils against an average of 600. Thanks for that, Ivan, and thanks for everyone listening today. News time now, 1 o'clock.